Hi, and welcome back to Season 2 of Ivy Matters. It's been a while since we last published an episode, but we're back with some interesting plans for this season, including occasionally offering video versions of the podcast when that's warranted. This episode brings back Tim Kaine and Ashish Misra from ibschoolimprovement.com with their take on the 2020 IB exam issues and how they've helped schools work with the fallout and results from this unique situation. We did video record this simultaneously because Tim shared his screen to illustrate the ways in which the scores were determined in a year without exams. He also showed some of the tools they used to help schools increase access by better understanding how scores are determined in a more typical year. So if you want to switch over and watch this episode rather than just listen, go to the MNIB YouTube channel. Links will be in the podcast notes. If you are simply listening, stay tuned. You'll not be lost. We try to describe the visuals when presented, and the conversation does not rely on the visuals to make the information relatable to you, the listener. So please listen as we break down the 2020 exam season and help you plan for the next round of exams, whether it be November 2020 or May 21. Welcome to IB Matters, a podcast for those who currently teach, lead, attend, or are interested in international baccalaureate IB schools. All right, folks, welcome back to IB Matters. It's been a little bit since we've been been uh, around. The summer of 2020 has been quite something, as, as you know, and uh, we're very happy to welcome back some returning uh, and very popular guests of ours from the past. Have you just noticed it's been about a year since we originally did a podcast with the folks from uh, IBSchoolImprovement.com? We have uh, Tim Kane and Ashish Misra. And uh, if you are listening to this, uh, just be aware that you can also watch this. So part of our season two changes is that some of our podcasts will also be available on YouTube. And we'll be sharing some more details about how to do that uh, in the podcast notes and also at the end of this podcast. So uh, welcome, guys. And uh, looking forward to the conversation about uh, what you do with Ivy School Improvement and also with the, uh, the changes that happened this year with the extraordinary events of the spring May exams. Hey, John, thank you so much for having us. It's, uh, again, a real honor to be here. We had such a great time about a year ago and uh, very thankful to be here today. Yeah, John, thank you for having us. This is super. We look forward to talking to you. Great, great. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about, remind, remind the folks who maybe didn't hear our podcast a year ago, uh, which, of course, they can find on our website. But if, if, they, if they haven't heard it, uh, why don't you tell them a little bit about who you guys are and what you do with IBSchoolImprovement.com. Uh, well, John, we are a collective of IB educators uh, who are deeply committed to access, equity, and excellence uh, in our careers as uh, IB teachers, DP coordinators, school leaders. Uh, we really drove um, a cause that many of us and many of your listeners, and I know you, are deeply committed to of, of breaking down those traditional barriers that we've created uh, across the, the globe of, in IB World Schools, but in particular in the public sector in the United States, where only a certain group of kids uh, in traditional schools are allowed to participate in the program. Uh, 
So we've organized a, a group of people that we've worked with together uh, who are on the forefront of that access and equity movement. Uh, in From 2014 to 2017, I had the great privilege and honor of leading the Bridging the Equity Gap Project at the International Baccalaureate. Um, and as I mentioned a year ago, what I discovered uh, during that period is what I'm great at is not necessarily driving the change itself, but identifying who those great leaders are out there um, across the world and in the United States who not only have on the ground led access equity work and have broken down those barriers uh, that prevent all kids from enjoying uh, rigorous education K through 12. Um, and I was able to bring those folks in to join the, the Bridging the Equity Gap Project, the IB. And Tim Kane was one of those leaders uh, who back in 2014, we, uh, you know, I had access to the great breadth of IB data at the time. And we identified Tim Kane's school had really empowered a large number of DP candidates to be successful across ethnicities and income levels. So today, we've joined together to really empower IB World Schools uh, um, around the globe to first gain a deep, deep understanding of what IB courses are really asking students to know and be able to do. It might sound so basic, but as you know, there's such distance between what happens in the classroom and what the assessment criteria is asking. Um, and then empowering those teachers with the pathway forward on, on how to provide uh, appropriate feedback to students of all levels so they can be successful. Sounds good. Yeah, so um, basically the, the, our belief is that and we know from research that the rigor of the high school curriculum is the number one indicator for bachelor degree attainment. And IB, quite simply, is the most rigorous high school curriculum in the world. And so we really look at it as how can we help more kids access the program and more kids be successful in the program? Because ultimately, you're going to have that's just a life changing event that will give them access. To, to things that they would never have access to, access to otherwise. And one of the things I have found in my work is that understanding how IB assessments work and really turning that data, and IB produces a very rich set of data, it's just not always in the most usable format. So I've really worked for 10 years and, and ultimately with ibschoolimprovement.com to develop a visualization that allows you to use that data and turn that data into information. And that really demystifies IB for teachers, which allows them to demystify it for kids, which leads to that increased access and equity. So that's what we do in normal times. But yeah, the, these aren't normal times. Yeah. Well, I think listeners will recognize too that uh, there's a bit of a, it seems almost like a disconnect when you say IB is the most rigorous uh, option available and we want more access. And so it seemed that they were counter to each other and your job, it sounds like, is to bridge that that uh, dichotomy there. Absolutely. And um, across all the, the um, services we provide to schools, the data visualization, leadership coaching around using information to drive change, and then professional development. There's really four simple things we're trying to do with uh, schools, and that's ensure that teachers and leaders are empowered to provide student feedback that's accurate and consistent, and so that all kids are getting 
information about how they can improve their skill 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 set from where they come when they enter the course, regardless of where that is. And in the diploma program, that means, as you know, unlocking what is often the black box, this mystery of what IB assessment results are really um, indicating. Um, and then, of course, what that assessment criteria is really asking students to know and be able to do. Again, I know it sounds so simple, but everyone in the IB community knows how complex that is. And then ensuring that teachers develop a classroom assessment model that gives students, and this is the key point uh, uh, to that you just made, that gives students the time and space to really develop those skills over time. Yeah. And I think it's also it's a messaging that you need to do from before the students are in the program. Um, in fact, there's a conversation getting started pretty pretty. Uh, strong conversation happening here in Minnesota. And as uh, listeners probably recognize that this is where George Floyd was killed about two miles from where I stand right now. And, and um, so our, and our local, you know, IB leaders have always been very on the forefront of, of social justice issues and things. And they are literally right now having a conversation about is IB too elite? Is IB uh, the wrong thing for, you know, messaging for kids. Are, are we are we denying them access because we put a program in place in their schools that they don't uh, typically do well in or they don't uh, typically think that they can do well in? And, you know, so I, I'm as I'm listening to you guys talk here today, I'm reminded of our conversation a year ago when that's that was, you know, what we were saying then. And, and now today it's even more important. But it, it's so important, I think, to you know, talk to seventh graders and eighth graders and ninth graders way before they get into the program that this is where you're headed. And uh, if you don't, if you don't have the tools in place among the diploma coordinators and, and career related program coordinators who also use IB diploma exams, of course, um, if you don't have the right messaging in place early, uh, you know, and it has to fit with what your practice is. And so what you guys are doing here is, is I think really important work. You know, John, I think you're absolutely spot on around communicating that messaging. And with everything going on, I've been considering lately uh, um, there needs to be a movement to start educating parents at really at the kindergarten level about how their children can be either empowered intellectually for success in the future or denied those opportunities moving forward. And I, I wonder, this is another podcast for another time, but yeah. I wonder who's who's leading that effort and how we can can further empower um, yeah. parents to make those decisions. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, with, with the conversation, probably, you know, this conversation that's just begun uh, making the circuit here in Minnesota IB schools uh, is something I'm sure will manifest itself in something that we can talk about. Um, and this would be, like I said, one of the tools. So um, yeah, that messaging from way early, you know, we heard, you know, we, we, we hear parents that want to be in an exclusive thing when in fact uh, you guys are showing that it, it's not really, doesn't need to be exclusive. Well, and I, I think that's, that's kind of at the core of this is I think we, there is, there's kind of like this mindset that is not necessarily a, that we haven't really rigorously thought about that says IB is this exclusive thing. And I work at a school that one of the things that we worked on, and it was really kind of like a five-year endeavor, was this idea that IB for all, that, that every one of our students should take one or more IB classes. And the reason for that is the skills that you're being taught in those classes are the skills that are preparing you for where these kids are going. Mm -hmm. And they're skills that are preparing you for life. And so why would we want to exclude that? I can, you know, I've been in this trade for a long time 
And I remember back years ago sitting on a GT screening committee, a gifted and talented screening committee, and I kind of look back upon that and go, why would you why would you do that? Why would you try to create barriers for students to access this when we know this is so valuable and so good? And I think one of the one of the one of kind of the mindsets that exist is more kids kind of has a negative effect on the program. And I think what you have to kind of break that mindset is no, more kids, it's just better for more kids and really is a positive effect. And that's, that's really kind of the work we're focusing on. Yeah, yeah that's great. Well, let's go, let's go ahead and get into the conversation. Um, you know, as we've kind of set the table here, um, you guys work with the data and help with uh, presenting the data so that you understand the, um, you know, what, what has happened and what, what could happen in a different way of teaching things and so on. Um, so obviously this year, the, you know, any of our listeners who are aware of IB are aware that the exams were, the regular sit-down exams were canceled in May. And uh, there are changes coming up for 2021, November and May of 20 and 21. Um, so what, what changed for you guys? And, you know, kind of maybe t- break it down for us. What happened? <laughs> you know, what's the breakdown? And then how has it uh, affected your work? Well, I think what ha- let's talk a little bit about what happened. Because I, um, I think a lot happened and we did not it happened so fast, we did not kind of know kind of what happened. So let's take a moment and kind of talk through that, Sure. kind of what happened, because it kind of comes in parts. Sure. And so, let, me just, uh, me- let me just mention to the listeners here, this is the point where we do have a screen share going on. So if you want to catch this um, on YouTube or uh, in a slide deck that we may be able to link, um, go ahead and uh, you can switch over and do that while you're listening even. <laughs> so, all right. Okay. So... So what we do know is in March of 2020, IB canceled the exams for May. And basically its place put in a, a different kind of way of awarding scores. The first thing they did was rather than engaging in the internal assessment moderation process, where we sent in a sampling, they asked for all of our internal assessments. Right. And they rescored all of our internal assessments. Our internal school marks were not used. They simply, an examiner rescored your internal assessment. And I, I think in the end, that may be the one benefit that may have come out of all this, because I think there's a learning opportunity for us there. Yeah. Number two, we submitted our predicted grades as normal. And basically, that was the exam. So that was the data we submitted, and then we kind of waited to see what the results were. On July 5th, IB released their scores, and basically those scores were based on three factors. What was the internal assessment score? What was the predicted grade? And then they used this thing called school context scaling. And that school context scaling factor, and I quoted it out of the document that IB published on the 15th of July in the slide. I'm not going to read it. But basically what it said was, we are going to look at your history of predicting grades and the history of your performance on the internal assessment vis-a-vis exam scores, and we're going to apply a scaling factor to that. So basically the way it worked, and I'm just going to go through this is it took the way the grade boundaries look this year 
are dramatically different than they looked before. There is simply one boundary for your internal assessment and one boundary for the subject. And basically the way it worked was you got an internal assessment score. That got multiplied by whatever number would make the max of that internal assessment score out of 100. So then you were applied a scaling factor based on that combination of internal assessment score and predicted grade. That scaling factor multiplied that out of 100 number. In the example I'm using, we're using a combination of, from math SL, we're using a combination of a 4 and 11, to which, and basically the uh, math IA is out of 20, so that 11 gets multiplied by 55. It gets scaled by a factor based upon your school and your subject. In this case, a six, a point six seven two seven. That equals a thirty-seven, and that was a three. Now, what we need to talk about that school context scaling factor, because let's drive down the road to a different school. Let's go to school B. That same combination of numbers, a four and eleven. But the scaling factor at school B was a point nine eight one eight. That yeah. makes it a yeah, fifty four, yeah. and that's a five. Now, in that case, the school context uh, scaling had to do with performance of the school and the students in past years. Is that kind Correct. of what? I'm, right. Correct. And so that's the part that certainly was very controversial because the current student was being affected by the performance of past students, not their own performance. And had they gone to a different school with the same score, they would have, in your example, had two-point higher grade, which is the difference between passing and, and possibly getting college credit. Correct. Yep. Correct. And, and very simply, what our statistical model seems to, and we do not know the algorithm, but we can tell you how the algorithm affects students. And basically, our model indicates that that scaling factor had to do with your history of predicting grades. In the, the example I just used, school A had a history of dramatically over-predicting grades. Therefore, their predicted grades were devalued. The scaling factor was much lower, having a negative effect on their students. School B, there was a much better history of predicting grades meaning that I devalued their predicted grades much more, and therefore that led to you know, a better scaling factor which had a more positive effect. Can I just ask a question related to predicted grades and, and you know, the fact that this was controversial and understand that, you know, why it was. Uh, in the U.S., we do not use predicted grades much. Colleges don't really rely on them, but in other parts of the world, and including Canada, my understanding is that predicted grades are kind of a big deal uh, and they're often used to uh, admit students before they take their exams or offer offer places or sometimes even scholarships because of that. Don't uh, colleges and international international colleges and universities, don't they have a version of this for themselves? In other words, if they have a, a school that they have a history with that they know those predicted grades don't actually turn out to be very accurate, do they do something with the, uh, their own version of this? I might be throwing you a curve here, but this is my what I remember hearing is that colleges did this a little bit too. As, as I understand it, and, and I've, we've worked with several international schools, and Ashish might be able to speak to it more, 
what happens is those predicted grades are advisory, but then the exam grade is what makes your admission contingent. And so what happened was in when the scores were released in July, particularly at the international schools, many students would have been denied admission because their exam scores were significantly different than what their predicted grade was based upon that model. Ashish, you want to say anything about that? You know, that's, so that's exactly it. Those, those students are getting provisional acceptance based on predictions, and then it becomes official uh, depending on the distance between their actual performance and, and the, how they, the score on, under which they were provisionally accepted. Thus, all of the controversy that was covered uh, pretty substantially um, by newspapers across the world after scores okay. came out in July. Okay. So as a, result, as a result of that controversy, there was a communication by the Director General of IB on August 17th. And what happened was on August 17th, IB amended the scores using a combination of the factors above. And you know, she was she made a very clear point that IB learned from the process, learned from the review process of the results re released in July, and they actually changed students' core scores. So basically what happened was no scores were lowered. So no matter what happened on August 17th, if, I, if either of the things I'm about to describe would have lowered a student's scores, it didn't happen. So basically the first scenario was that if the predicted grade was within one mark, plus or minus the internal assessment mark, IB gave the student the internal assessment mark. And so the way that worked is, and this is an example from history, a student earned a 13 on the internal assessment. Based on the grade boundary, that's a five. If the student was predicted at a four, they got the five. If a student was predicted at a five, they got the five. If the student was predicted at a six, they got the six. So I think like the one kind of really crystal clear lesson that comes out of May 2020 is the value of the internal assessment. It is just, it is important in normal times, but in the time of COVID, it is super important. Let me just clarify, the last thing you said is that if they had a predicted six, but had a five internal assessment, they got a a six or did they get a five the circle they got a five five okay Just the internal sure assessment that the internal assessment becomes governing got if it. you're in one mark of your predicted grade, of the predicted grade. yeah and that's what the that's what the graphic showed i just want to make sure listeners uh, heard that correctly so it's, it is a five whether the predicted is a four five or six if the internal assessment was a five they got a five that's because they were within one right and then the, the other, the set, and that deals, that takes care of the vast majority of students in the world. If you look at it, I think it's, I think the number's like 70% of the students who, who get a internal assessment score within one mark plus or minus of their exam score. So 
scenario two was what happened if the predicted grade was more than one mark off? And at that point, they go back to the formula I described at first. So this is a student whose predicted grade was more than one mark off. And so in this case, the student earns a five on the internal assessment. That is equal to a two, but the student was predicted at a four. And you think about that, that's a dramatic difference between yep. earning a, a internal assessment score of a two and being predicted at a four. At that case, we go back and do the math. Multiple, the school context scaling is gonna be applied. We're gonna multiply that five by four. That's gonna lead to a 20. That 20 gets multiplied by a school context scaling factor of 1.8. That becomes a 36. And within the grade boundaries, that's a four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, for the for the folks that are listening and not watching, uh, you know, it's it's laid out on the screen here. The reason this one was multiplied by four is because the possible internal assessment was twenty five. So to get to one hundred, it had to be multiplied by four. Or the previous example, the top was twenty and was multiplied by five. So, yeah. So this this makes sense. Um, uh, but you know, in terms of what they chose to do, and did this end up uh, satisfying folks? I, I the the outcome I believe has been very very positive to this. I think both in the explanation from IB and the result, and I think it has gone a long way to kind of kind of um, help people understand it because that school context scaling factor was not readily available. You couldn't see it in the IB data. You had to actually derive it yourself. Which is one of the things that led to the a lot of the angst around exam scores because they kind of go, well, I predicted the kid at this. This is their IA score. Why is this their exam score? And that really kind of caused the consternation. So this becomes much more clear because for the majority of the students, what they what they got was what they got on their internal assessment. Okay, so um, thinking thinking about what uh, you know as a as a former DP coordinator myself, um, this strikes me not that we hope this ever happens again, or you know it's something some version of this will probably happen this year, but but um, you know the importance of um, of predicted grades was not very much in Minnesota because we didn't have that many kids, at least in my school, going internationally, and the the accuracy of an individual teacher's um, predicted grades was not, you know, there was no real teeth in it. But this appears to me that maybe uh, as a coordinator, I might go back and, and ask teachers to be a little more serious and to also, you know, have some real uh, thinking behind the predicted grade. It's not just quick throw a number down because that kid is about here. Is that, is that true? I think, I think that is exactly, I think that is exactly one of the lessons because I think there are really two lessons that come out of May 2020. I think number one is the significance of the internal assessment. And number two is the need to be very accurate in our prediction of grades. Because we now realize that, that, that if we are, if we do both of those things well, it's gonna serve our students. And I believe it will serve our students both in the time of COVID and if we get to go back to exams. Because one of the things we know is that that internal assessment score is so important and it's the one we have the most control over. Right. Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, go ahead. You know, and 
I was going to say that schools that we've been collaborating with for many years now really utilize the data visualization tool to immediately see if teachers are in a position to provide students with accurate feedback or not based on either uh, the accuracy of the predicted grade over time or the distance between the predicted grade and the actual mark. So uh, schools like Tim's school and then again schools that we collaborate with end up using it as, as a really outstanding tool to evaluate. Uh, where we are in our assessment practice in the classroom. Yeah, Sorry yeah, about that. yeah. No, that that being serious about the IAs as well, and you know, a lot of kids, you know, didn't know at the time their IAs were turned in that they would be the only or mostly the only thing that they were assessed on. You know, it always had been the story when people we talked about the humaneness of the IB program is that if a student, for example, uh, had a very you know had a bad illness on the day of the exam or there was a family emergency and they couldn't attend. We could always go back and use the IA and the predicted grades and so on. But here we had it for 100% of the students, you know, even though we thought, well, it's a scenario that's not very likely in most cases. And here it was, you know, that was it. Here we go. Well, and I think, and what she brought up is if you, and I on the screen now is a visualization, is our, a shot of our visualization, but there are kind of two kind of touchstones that, I believe what happened in May of 2020 kind of reinforced is number one, how clearly are you applying that rubric for the internal assessment? And I think this goes back to both before moderation and what happened in May of 2020, because again, those IA scores were so important. But number two is what has been your history of predicting grades? We come up with a number that's called variance for the predicted grade. And basically, it's telling you, like, are you over-predicting or under-predicting, and by how much? And we like to see you kind of within, like, 0.5 of the predicted grade, 0.5 plus or minus variance of the predicted grade. Yep. And yep. what we have seen is, from the schools that we have worked with, that if you're kind of within that statistical framework, that school context scaling factor is going to have generally positive effects for you. And if you fall outside that area, it's generally going to probably have some negative effects for you. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, that'd be a message I would certainly share with any DP coordinator or CP coordinator listening. And I'll definitely be sharing this with the Minnesota folks uh, because it's a, it's a big deal being, you know, being accurate. You can see in your example, that first example, how important the scaling factor would have been. And again, you know, lesson learned, maybe that's not going to be the, a key factor that's coming up, but it, it definitely, it's, it's not only, if it's not a factor in creating these exam scores, it's a factor in your schools and your teachers understanding what they're supposed to be doing. Correct. So I, and I want to go back to one thing I said in the beginning is uh, if, and there's probably, there's, I don't think anything good that's come out of COVID-19, but if there is anything that can help us get through COVID-19 is IB rescore or scored all of our internal assessments. And what you can do is do a category 2A inquiry upon result and bring all those scored internal assessments back to your school for a very modest fee. And what you get in those internal assessments when they come back is you really get, you get to see how IB applied the rubric there's also an off-page comment 
that describes why they awarded it, what they did based upon the rubric, and you get to see those examiners' comments. And for people that have been troubled by the moderation process in the past, that idea of going and seeing all of your scored internal assessments and being able to compare them to how you scored them, I think is a unique opportunity that we're only going to get while this is going on. Uh, Ashish, you mentioned before we before we started recording about how, um, and, and this made logical sense to me that your 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 skill set as a team would maybe not be very necessary since there were no rich data sets from exams. Was this the area where you found yourself uh, helping people with their IA analysis? across a lot of areas actually, because of the school context scaling, school <clears throat> partners that we hadn't worked with in the past were very interested in seeing a five-year analysis of their school's results to then get a long-term uh, sense of how accurate or inaccurate their predicted grades had been over time. So to see why, especially schools that had a, a significant shift from their students' actual performance with their, their grades before the August 17th change. So that was the first thing. Um, second, uh, of course, looking at, at the IA, I mean, one of the things that uh, our tool does is it shows uh, gives a really strong sense of how the IAs were moderated. And in 2020, you wouldn't see that, but uh, it, for previous years, it, it can be a value. And then uh, the tool also provided or provides schools with a detailed explanation of or visualization of their school context scaling. So exactly what happened to each individual student, um, which schools were very eager to get in July 2020 uh, to really gain that understanding, especially so they can okay. explain to teachers in the building exactly what happened, why it happened, and then explain um to parents, uh, what happened, and what those of you uh, looking at this, what you're seeing on the screen now is is that um, description. Tim, I don't know if you want to describe that. Well, I just if I can give kind of two examples. This is an example from history, and what you see up here is this dotted line here shows you the average school context scaling for that subject. In this case, the scaling was a point. 9506 and basically the closer you are to one the like point one point zero 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 the better it's going to be for your students i think i said that earlier yeah so yeah. in this case it had a very school context scaling had a very positive effect on this subject what i want to do is give another example i'm going to go over here to geography sl and if you look at it their average context was a 0.7559, which means basically on average, students only retained about 75% of the mark from their IA, which means the context had a very negative effect upon their outcomes. Now, again, this was slightly changed in August when they made the revision, but still, I think this indicates gives you a numerical indication of your alignment with IB and how how well you are applying those predicted grades. Because I think the second lesson that comes out of this is we've got to be providing, we've got to be awarding those predicted grades in a very, very um, data 
bound fashion so that those predicted grades are as accurate as possible because that's going to have an effect upon our students. Yeah, because yeah. yeah, this, this factor comes into play if you had more than two, two or more difference between the IA and the predicted grade. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I don't know if you guys are ready to, to kind of move on to what happens next. Um, you know, what are we going to do? How are we looking at this uh, November and, and May sessions coming up? Uh, is there, is it, is it time to kind of move on to what you're thinking there? Yeah, absolutely. And th this has been the, you, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, what's the work we've been doing with schools. Um, as, as you said, uh, our team was sitting down in March thinking that, well, uh, because of the cancellation of exams, our services are going to be, uh, you know, not that effective or needed this year to support schools. And quite the opposite has been true. Uh, again, because of um, how confusing results were, and then the to the next part, teams realizing based on seeing what happened with their students, based on seeing how either for a lot of schools, the inaccuracy of their predictions impacted their students. They're really driven for change. And then I'd even say much more so than that, we're all functioning in a very different educational environment. We have far more time constraints uh, than we've ever had before. And those time constraints are already, were already so significant. So schools are really eager to figure out um, ways they can logically make decisions about what to stop doing in terms of scope, sequence, curriculum, and assessment, what to really begin to focus on with students, um, and then how to scaffold the curriculum in preparation um, for what is, uh, just to be frank, a challenging school year for all of us. And so that's that's been the yeah. primary. In, in the PD we've led now, uh, the webinars we've led now with over 500 educators around the world, that's been the primary focus of, of what we've been working towards and to help empower teachers, school leaders to guide teams to be able to do that. Cool. And are you prepared to tell our listeners what those are? <laughs> or at least some of them? <laughs> well, I think, I think if you look at this first, what we, what we know right now, kind of about November, and I think we can kind of um, look at it as a model for what might happen in May, is if, if a school is meeting in, in some version of face-to-face, they can give the exams seated as, as normal. If the school is meeting virtually, they do not have to give the exam. So some, some version of what we described earlier will happen. So I think the kind of the, the takeaways from that are, you know, we don't know what the future's gonna bring. We don't know how, how COVID's gonna play out. So I think the, the kind of the two things that we, well, actually we know three things. Number one, we know those internal assessments are going to be valuable no matter yeah. what. Mm -hmm. Number two, we know those predicted grades are going to be extremely important. Number three, in August, IB released a document that basically are the modifications for May 2021 if the students sit for those exams. And in those modifications, they, you know, some... Uh, components were removed, some components were modified. So they basically gave us, you know, some way, as Ashish discussed, to engage in curriculum reduction. So I really think kind of like, regardless of, you know, it is such a crazy time, we just don't know what the future holds. 
but we can kind of cling to those kind of three things as being extremely important. The internal assessment, those, you know, how do you predict grades more accurately? And then um, looking at those curriculum modifications and how, what can you stop doing? I think those three things can help teachers a lot in these really, really strange times. Well, it's interesting you know, talk about the modifications. One of the things that, that I'm hearing and, and both in the Minnesota kind of communication circle and also as I watch some of the Facebook pages centered on IB educators of various uh, subjects is that while the exams may not include things, for example, the reading list and literature is still so supposed to be as substantial as it always was, but the exam itself won't include some some things that that so people were like naturally thinking well i can just now drop two texts but they're not supposed to you know and and i think those are difficult decisions i think it's is because what we know is and where where i live we're going back virtually and we're you know if you look at it just based upon like how it works we're losing probably about a third of our seat time with students and there's just no way that you can do everything right in this environment i think you just have to make smart choices and i think the way to make smart choices is to go back and kind of look at your data and kind of see kind of what lessons that you can learn because one of the things and I'll, I'll go back to this is you know valuing that internal assessment is going to be is going to bear benefit for you now, does that mean that in valuing that internal assessment, you might focus less on one of your components? I think so be it. You know, my wife is an IB history teacher, and uh, her immediate response to those changes the day she got them, I used to be an IB history teacher, so it was the conversation at the dinner table. And uh, her immediate response was, of course, they're going to absolutely cut content, no question about it. And um, the the power of IB assessment criteria is around the intellectual skills that we build in kids. I don't want to get caught up in, in a debate about content here, but I think those of us that have seen how empowered students are intellectually know that um, it's, of course, content's important, but it's how we teach students to utilize right. that content, you know, moving. Yeah. Realistically, that's, it seems like that's the permission that was granted by taking those things out and, and to kind of go back and then say, but you still have to do everything is disingenuous. And a little bit too, if I recall our conversation a year ago, that's part of what you guys do with your, your, your group does is empower teachers to decide on what's most important to teach so that they're not getting kids, you know, for access, a student that's bogged down on details that'll never be recorded again. You know, like I said, it's the habits of mind that you're trying to develop. And you can do that with students with all backgrounds. I, I believe completely. And I believe one of the, one of the things is, and I think, it's why looking at the data is so important and why kind of understanding how a student gets a score. Because I think in sometimes, particularly like when teachers look at those curriculum guides, they are, they are very large and very detailed and they go, I have to do all of this and I have to do all of this at a very high level. And that is not actually true. If you look at how kids earn scores, to get a seven, you do not have to get a seven on paper one, paper two, paper three in your internal assessment. That's not the way it works. That you can get, you know, what would be the equivalent of a seven and then get a six and 
you know, a six and a six, and it might work out to a seven. And so I think understanding how those components fit together is, is very liberating for teachers because I think it allows them to kind of focus their efforts, you know, and it also allows you to build what is in essence a richer class that is rigorous, but rigorous around the right this in this morning's webinar, uh, we had a new teacher on the webinar asking, "Okay, tell me the one thing that I need to focus on this year to be successful." And I wrote uh, dramatically: I, assessment criteria, assessment criteria, assessment criteria. You know, build your entire course, your daily lessons around how you're going to develop those skills in a scaffold way. And if you do that, your kids are going to uh, be highly successful. Um, is there uh, are there some is there some things you guys have figured out or are hoping will be the the way forward when it comes to distance learning in these things? Um, are there some skills that you're seeing or people are practicing yet? Great question. You know, folks have been so worried around um, academic honesty around assessments, and I. Uh, think this is going to drive everyone to really improve the kind of assessments that they're building that really require students to practice those intellectual skills around that concern. And uh, Tim has a great vision for that. So I, I will pass. I, I, I really think when you get to the idea of virtual assess, assessment, and that is a very tough nut to crack, but I think when you get to the idea that goes, our assessment model kind of in the past was based on the idea that we could put kids in a room and cut them off from the outside world and give them these assessments. And really what we can't do that now. So what can you do to make your assessment authentic when you realize that, you know, kids can have access to Google and things like that. And that's where I think the ID assessments are so valuable because they're really, if you think about it, content knowledge only gets you to about a four, if that. What really gets you to like a five or six or seven is how you use that knowledge. It's those higher order thinking skills. And I think what we have to do is develop assessments that basically, you know, fine, you can Google who Gutilio Vargas is, but that's really not going to help you to explain his response to the Great Depression in Brazil in a timed essay using an ID rubric. And I think that's kind of where we got to kind of think about how do we do our assessments differently. And I think the other thing is, if you think about assessments, if your kids are Googling to get the answer, they're still kind of learning. So maybe, maybe you use that, those kind of knowledge assessments in a formative ma manner. And as she said earlier, one of, our, one of our big ideas is develop a grading assessment model that helps kids develop these skills over time so that they are successful. Yeah. When you um, look at the definition of authentic assessment, intellectual accomplishments that are worthwhile, significant, and meaningful. I mean, is that not a direct description of all of the IB assessment criteria? You know, really give students the time and space to create meaning around all the information inputs they're getting. And in IB, just regurgitating those, those that data is not going to result in, in a strong mark, being able to interpret the information and express it in a meaningful way to actually answer a real question within a content field. That is the IB, right? Uh, so 
uh, whether a student got it from here, you know, Google or not, um, and spend a certain amount of time on it, if they're able to really articulate arguments within an academic field in a strong way, we're accomplishing what we're trying to do as IB educators. So they sound like the content uh, professional. You know, I, know, I remember when I taught, I taught IB physics and um, DP physics, and I still still stuck with me even now years later that the um, the trainer just said, you know, your students answering a physics question on the exam, uh, you should not be able to tell the difference between a physicist and your student answering that question. You know, they they, they need to they need to show their thinking and they need to express the way they thought it through, like a physicist would, which is also then carried out as to how you know other people, a mathematician and a economist and a psychologist and so on that would do that same thing. So it's that, that way of thinking and getting that out. And like you mentioned, it, the term formative comes to mind. It, this is all, it's really the whole year is formative and uh, we get stuck in our own silos with our own school procedures and how grades are determined. But hopefully by the time you've gotten to the diploma program, uh, teachers and students both realize that it's more about, like you said a few times, the habits of mind and, and uh, not just uh, content knowledge. Exactly. Um, so anything else uh, that you want to share about what you guys are doing? And what, you know, last time we talked a little bit about, I think, uh, the platform and, and what the business model was and how people get involved with you guys. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that again or what would you like to do? Sure. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about the data visualization, really empowering teachers for in, with information so they can move forward and be successful. I shared in our first podcast how, uh, as a very young teacher, Tim gave me, uh, Tim was a mentor of mine and a department chair, uh, more, uh, gosh, now 20 years ago, and gave me very direct uh, feedback through data analysis of how poorly I had performed with my ESOL students. Um, and uh, I think we have a strong collaboration now because of how empowering that experience has been for us. So we provide a data visualization tool for schools that does the same thing. If we can get beyond the fear of seeing how our kids are actually performing and use it instead as uh, ways to inform our practice and move forward. And then I think one of the most powerful tools, the data alone, as we all know, isn't going to transform practice in a school. It's really how school leaders and coordinators and teachers choose to use that data. So we provide coaching. Um, um, I think the primary clients we've had around coaching have been um, coordinators and assistant principals, and in a few cases, uh, department chairs or curriculum leaders, um, really giving them a methodology to use the data to drive practice. Um, and more recently, we've been um, utilizing a really focused professional development model that participants have said is hands down the best IB-focused PD they've ever received. And that model is to design school-specific PD around how students are actually performing. So what we've done is we've created a team of subject experts around the world. Many of them are IB exam, actually most of them, not all, but most are IB examiners. And they actually review um, anonymized papers from a school's program, and they develop uh, six hours of PD for a curriculum team based on where students' strengths and weaknesses are. And I, I hope I, all listeners can imagine why that's so impactful. And uh, for the first time this year, we're offering subject PD to teaching teams around the world. We have sessions on psychology around the IA specifically because um, once the curriculum changed last year, we found psychology teachers were really struggling to understand what that criteria um, means. We're doing the same thing for business economics. Uh, we have PD on the on um, really aligning your curriculum to the TOK uh, titles once they're published in September. 
Um, and then we do offer a whole team PD based on utilizing uh, an understanding of how your students are performing to adjust teaching practice. And that's another example. If any of you had the pleasure of seeing Tim at any of the IB World Conferences uh, in the United States or Canada, you have uh, seen a group, of, uh, a group of people that are really transformed when they leave those sessions, thinking about results in a totally different way um, to, to really shift practice. And folks can uh, get more information about all those services I described at ibschoolimprovement.com, and they can reach out to any of us at info at ibschoolimprovement.com. Right. Those links are in the podcast notes, and and uh, we'll have it uh, available for everyone, but obviously they can just type it in. You just said it. Um, as, as the old folks say, all one word. Um, <laughs> I get a kick out of that. People still say that. Um, Let's see. Well, anything else? Um, you know, I, I said this last time, but it, you know, I, I love data, and I did a version of this in very simple ways when I discovered pivot tables and started sharing with my uh, local Minnesota coordinators that we did this. It was, you know, it's like once you know how to do some of this stuff and recognize it, you you seem like a genius, and you guys, of course, seem like geniuses to me. But uh, the uh, it, this just knowing data and, and having information in front of you presented in a way that you can understand it rather than just a a data table with just numbers all over the place. It's uh, it's transformative, and uh, and obviously a bottom line. It helps the students in the end. I, I mean that's what this is all about. You know, the last thing I'll I'll say is I mentioned at the beginning when I worked at the IB, I realized my strength was you know finding the right people. But what we're also trying to outside of the services we provide, we're also trying to build a, a community and connect the folks who are really doing this work. I've always been so impressed with. Uh, the folks on the ground in Minnesota, specifically in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, really leading access and equity work. Um, so I invite, uh, even if you're not interested in, in our, you know, partnering around our services, please reach out if you're leading this cause and this charge and have something meaningful to say about it. Um, again, info at ibschoolimprovement.com. That'd be great, yeah. And John, I just, we said at the beginning, but I'll say it again, you know, you've been at the forefront of that work and, um creating this podcast has been part of that and we just uh, are really grateful for everything you've done. I appreciate that. Thank you. And I, I do think, as I said in the beginning here, that the conversation that I'm aware of happening in Minnesota about equity and, and access, um, you know, I, I'm going to make sure that they have a chance to invite you guys to a conversation uh, because I know it's, it will, it's not just a conversation. It's going to, it's going to bear fruit. And we in Minnesota have a special, um, interest in ensuring that conversation doesn't die down. It's very, very important. It always has been, but it's, it's magnified in these times. So I appreciate what you guys are doing. Thank All you. right. Well, anything else for the good of the order folks? Uh, otherwise we can wrap it up. We're good. Thank you very All much. Right. Thanks again. Well, John. thank you again for your time. And uh, I appreciate your, your coming out. Remember this episode is also available on YouTube so you can see everything Tim and Ashish were talking about. The data visualizations are clear and very illuminating. Check them out and other information using the links in our podcast notes. Now that we have over 50 IB Matters episodes covering a range of topics, you can use our podcast webpage, which is organized by program and by topic. The link to the website is in our podcast notes as well. Also, we want to call your attention to the official IB organization podcast called IB Voices. Each episode is interesting and has practical information to share from experts across the IB continuum. Please find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts and click subscribe so you don't miss any future programs. Follow us on Twitter at MattersIB. Also help us spread the word 
about IB by liking, sharing, and reviewing the IB Matters links in your own feeds and social networks. In just over a year, we've been heard in over 135 countries, a testament to the global reach of the IB.